Father, as we sit and stand before you, we would ask for your blessing, your guidance, the moving of your spirit, which you have placed into those who believe, that you might move us to a place of understanding, and that as we gain knowledge, you would give us wisdom in the application of that knowledge. And help us, Lord, as we go through and we look at the stories that are in your word that we would remember them, that we would recall them to mind, that they would give us reasons for faith, that we simply wouldn't come to a place where we just want to experience you and not know about you. So, Father, we pray that you would enrich our lives with the knowledge through your word of who you are, your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we left off with the transfiguration on, I believe, Mount Hermon. Some would say Mount Tabor. And as I told you last week, and we'll just cover it by review to cover the rest of the chapter here. In chapter 16, it left off with verse 28. And I told you last time, I believe verse 28 actually belongs in chapter 17. The uh, chapter and verse divisions came much later. And so it would just read better uh, to give you this context here. Verse 28, it says, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. And of course, this is metamorphosis. This is like a caterpillar and turning into a chrysalis and out comes a butterfly. That's what happened when he changed in his appearance uh, before his disciples there. And Moses and Elijah, of course, were also there. And we talked about why Peter, James, and John, and why Moses and Elijah. And I went through the idea there's two or three witnesses that are necessary to establish any matter. If something is true or something is false or if something happens where somebody has to appear before a court of law it was necessary for two or three witnesses and that's the reason for peter james and john and moses and elijah referred to the old testament law and the prophets because jesus 12 times in the gospels referred to the law and the prophets and that was everything to the jews at the time the law and the prophets there was nothing greater than that and you had the two greatest men out of the old testament you had moses who was considered almost a savior just like jesus of the people of Israel. And then you had Elijah, which brought an apostate nation back to the Lord. And he was one to be feared. He was one. Remember the prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets there that they ended up being killed because of their false worship. And he was part of that. So he brought the people back to God. And then the transfiguration was meant to confirm and establish that Jesus was in fact the divine son of God. In verse four, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In doing this, he was also going to place Moses and Elijah on equal footing with Jesus. And there's, there's no equal footing with any of his creation compared to Jesus. And Jesus is certainly the creator of all things. And he just didn't know what to say. And so he opened up his mouth, foot and mouth disease, and... The father interrupted him in verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. This would be called the Shekinah glory of God. When the temple was built, God's Shekinah glory came down. and It was so thick they couldn't see anything. They had to exit the temple and also the tabernacle. Same thing. 
says, A bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Two additional times the, fa- the voice of the father was heard when Jesus was on earth. One of those times was Luke chapter 3, verse 21. And this is when Jesus was being baptized. He said, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. And so Jesus had his father speak to him. And of course, at the transfiguration, they were so afraid, they fell down to the ground. They closed their eyes. They were greatly shaken, shivering, I imagine. Another time that Jesus had his father speak, in John chapter 12, verse 27 He asked the father to save him from this hour if it was possible, but he knew it wasn't possible. Verse 28 of John chapter 12 says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And the crowd heard it and they said it had thundered. And some said an angel had spoken to him. So they clearly heard the voice of the father. I don't know about you, but if I ever heard God's voice, I think I would do the same thing that Peter, James, and John did. I would fall to the ground. I can't imagine what his voice would be like. And of course, God the Father does not have a body. If we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father, but the Father himself, he's able to speak. Even though he doesn't have vocal cords, he's able to do something to where we can actually hear him with one of our five senses, the sense of hearing. And so it would be a, a, probably a thunderous voice. Like I said, the disciples were terrified. And the father spoke in response to or in reference to his son. So the father raises up the son. And, of course, we know from Philippians, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what brings the father glory, is Jesus being the head of all creation. Now, in case... You were wondering, well, when the Father spoke, did he also use Scripture when he spoke? Because Jesus, when he spoke, he is the Word of God. Well, yeah, I'm glad you asked. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. The Father says to the Son, you are my Son. And so when the Father spoke, he reiterated what the Word said in Psalm 2, 7. Also in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. The Father says to the Son that he is one in whom my soul delights. And so you see how the Father is just repeating what is already written in our scriptures. Matthew twelve eighteen quotes the passage, In whom my soul is well pleased. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, God the Father says through Moses the prophet about the coming Jesus, Him you shall hear. So the Father again was just speaking what was already in the word. Now, the Father's voice obviously is powerful but jesus's voice is powerful as well to the casting out of demons he could just speak to the spiritual realm that was existing at the same time concomitant with the physical realm and that spiritual realm would obey him like in luke chapter 4 verse 35 the casting out of demons he also spoke creation into existence colossians chapter 1 verse 16 now can you do that can you go into your garage or in your kitchen and if you're in the kitchen say let there be brownies. Wouldn't, wouldn't you like, yeah, yeah, amen. Wouldn't you like to do something like that? Or if you're a guy and you're, you're into cutting your lawn, if you still have a lawn and the lawnmower's broken, say, be thou working. 
something like that. Just, just make it happen. Could you do that? Or could you just speak to the grass? Thou shalt shrink instead of, instead of grow. You know, wouldn't that be great to be able to do that or to heal yourself? You don't even have to speak it. You just think it and all of a sudden you're healed from any kind of injury that you might have. We don't have that kind of power. But God has that kind of power. And it's based, that power is based in what we believe or in whom we believe. If we believe in Jesus, he told us that nothing is impossible for us. If we ask him anything, of course, according to his will, we have it. And so if we just involve ourselves in prayer and it's his will, you get it. And of course, we want to test that out. Lord, can I have some money? No, you can't have some money because I want you to rely on me. Guess what? If we have a lot, lots of money, what do we have a tendency to trust in? The money is what we trust in. But when we get to heaven, guess what we're going to own? Everything. We're gonna, God's giving it all to us. Not only do we own everything, but when we get to heaven, and Scripture tells us this, that he is going to allow us to come sit on his throne with him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine any earthly king going, you, come on up and sit down here with me? It's not going to happen in this lifetime. I mean, power corrupts and power corrupts absolutely here for us who exist on this earth, unless somebody is completely sold out to Jesus Christ. And that is certainly a rarity, even inside the historic church, even inside Judaism. It was the priest in both religions that garnered the power and held on to it and had the power of life and death to the point that they wanted to crucify Jesus Christ or anyone in the Christian church that follows some line of dissent from what was taught. And Jesus is the only one that can rule and reign in righteousness. Now, when we get our new bodies, we're not going to have that sinful nature. And we're all going to be going, oh, you go first. No, you go first. After you, you're my friend. No, you go first. You're going to want to serve the other person. You're going to consider them better than yourself. You'll be sacrificial just as Jesus is sacrificial in his perfect nature. And so he's going to change all of that for us. And I long for that day. Now, Peter bears witness of this transfiguration. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, it says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And this is why verse 28 fits in there. Some of you will not die until you see the Lord coming in all of his glory. That's what he's referring to here. Verse 17, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I, am, who I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So he recalls this. And remember, it was only Peter and James and John, the two or three witnesses that are necessary, and they're recounting this event. And now Peter, James, and John instantly recognized Moses and Elijah. Now they had never seen them. But when they were there, they go, oh, Moses, Elijah. They just knew who it was. I don't think Jesus went over to Moses. Moses, I'd like you to meet Peter. This is Peter, James, and John. I don't think he did that. Why do I think he did not do that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it tells us what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. It says, 
Now on this earth, we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Now we see pretty clearly in a mirror. But back then, their mirrors were made like a bronze. You polish that thing, you know, and you always look kind of yellow like the bronze in there. Maybe maybe a little chrome type look. But they would just polish that up. They didn't have the glass mirror backed with silver to see clearly like we do today. So then they, they couldn't get the close-up, the HD re, uh, resolution that was there. It was always kind of like the analog television that we used to watch, or even the black and white. You know, you look at, oh, wow, can't quite make out what's going on there. The Ed Sullivan Show, you know, something like that. But he says here in this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So people you have never met, millions of them, you'll know all their names. You'll be able, there's Hector, there's John, there's Cleophas, there's, you'll be able to just pick them out. They'll all know you too. When you show up in heaven, when you, you walk up there, say you, you die before the rapture and you get up there, they're going, yo, if it was me, they go, Bill, good, hi, millions of people, you know, it's going to be that way with all of us. They'll all know who we are and we won't have to ask any questions about God at all. You know, we, we have this idea when you get to heaven, what question are you going to ask God? You're not going to have to because you're going to go, I was going to, I already know, sorry. You're going to have the information available to you. You're going to know everything you need to know about God. And everyone's going to know you. And you're going to know everyone else up there. Isn't that great? And, and when you go to somebody and say, hey, did you know? Yeah, I knew that. You're going to have everything you need for life and godliness, just like God's word says. Now, going on in verse 6, it says, when the disciples heard the father's voice, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And, of course, Peter did that. I just told you that. And for Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Now, why not tell? Obviously, there had already been attempts to make Jesus king and two things, two possibilities could have been there. One would undoubtedly have spurred on that pursuit to make him king, but it was not his time. He had to go to the cross first. Others, it could shed doubt on the other disciples. Like, what makes you so special, Peter, James, and John? Why you get to see this? And the flesh could have taken over, and it just could have been a real problem. So he said, just hold off until the Spirit indwells all of them. Of course, Jesus breathed on them. They all received the Spirit of God in the Gospel of John. And so they have this understanding after the resurrection, and it would be a great thing to reveal that after the resurrection, and God would use it for his own purposes. But there would have been problems explaining the transfiguration before that. Verse 10, the disciples asked him, why then do teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. 
So scripture clearly tells us in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 that the man, the prophet, Elijah, will show up. It says, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. When Jesus showed up, it was not yet, quote unquote, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord began with the last days after the church was formed. And we are living in those last days, which leads up to the great and terrible day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation, the great tribulation. All of that is the day of the Lord. And Elijah must come. Now, if you remember your scripture, Elijah never died. There are two people that never died. Who's the other one, class? Enoch. Enoch never died either. Now, of course, if you do a little study on Enoch, you'll come to the conclusion that that was kind of like the rapture. There are people who will exist here before the rapture comes and will be translated, taken up to meet the Lord in the air right after those who have died in the Lord, who have fallen asleep when they are resurrected in their new bodies. And so those two will go and meet the Lord in the air. But Elijah never died either. He had a custom ride. Set of wheels came down from heaven, chariot of fire, took him, and he went up, and Elisha was there, and he wanted a a double blessing that Elijah had, and he did twice the amount of miracles when he was there watching him go away. And Elijah told him, if you're there when I go up, then you'll get the double blessing. And so Elisha got it when Elijah left. But Elijah will come back, I believe, to be one of the prophets in the end times. But Jesus makes this comparison between John the Baptist and Elijah. And one pastor put it like this, the, the comparisons between the two. It says, Elijah was noted for being full of zeal for God. So was John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, he never cut his hair. Now, if he had a full head of hair, he would be kind of a wild man. And his coat was camel's hair. I don't know if you've petted a camel lately, but it's not silk. It's more like sandpaper than silk. And he had a belt of leather. Now, we think a belt of leather with a buckle. You know, I have a belt of leather on with a little buckle on it. It was probably just a strap of leather. He just tied it around there like that. And he had a beard. All Jewish men at that time, they had a beard. And what was his diet? Bugs. He ate bugs is what he ate. He ate bugs with honey. Now, just yesterday, we had a a beehive taken out of the church here. It was up in the toddler room. We thought about putting all the kids in there and letting the bees fly around, but that was probably not a good idea. But we took out the hive that was in there, and it was about the size of a basketball. And we have some pictures of it. And then he he sucked out all of the bees. And you see the honeycomb that is up in there. And I asked him to remove the honeycomb. I didn't want that thing molding up in there. And he pulled that down. And you know those honeycombs. You break those open and it's a honey, right? Well, that's what John the Baptist ate. And so he, he either had honeycomb with him. So he'd take a bite of the honeycomb. And he'd take a bite of grasshopper. Good food, yo, oh, great stuff. And that's what he ate. You know, the grasshopper a little bitter, chase it with a little sweeter. You know, it, it's a good thing. So it's a kind of guy you'd want to bring home for mom and dad if you were a girl, right? 
wearing camel's hair, a leather belt, long hair, big beard, honey and grasshopper legs in the beard. That's the kind of guy you'd want to bring home to mom and dad. No, he, he was a prophet of God. He was set out by himself. And even Elijah goes, no one likes me. I'm out here by myself. All have been perished. He didn't say no one likes him. They were obviously God liked him and that was good enough. But they were separated for God. And they would have been considered very unusual. And God would say, you're perfect. You are unusual and you're perfect. And so God used them. And there was no one greater. John was called the greatest prophet who had ever come up until that time. Who was it? Elijah. Well, they're kind of one and the same. Elijah boldly rebuked sin in high places. So did John the Baptist. Elijah called sinners and compromisers to a decision of repentance. So did John the Baptist. Elisha attracted multitudes in his ministry. So did John the Baptist. Elijah attracted the attention and fury of a king and his wife. So did John the Baptist. Elijah was an austere man. So was John the Baptist. It means they they didn't carry around much. They didn't have anything, actually. It goes on to say that Elijah fled to the wilderness. John the Baptist also lived there. Elijah lived in a corrupt time and was used to restore failing spiritual life in the nation of Israel. And so was it true with John the Baptist? And so they were very similar. John came in the spirit and power of John the Baptist, or excuse me, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah did all these miracles. The miracle that John the Baptist did, there weren't any miracles he was just a witness for jesus christ and so they were certainly similar other similarities in scripture it's replete in the old testament things were foreshadowed like for instance john the baptist coming in the spirit of power of elijah was foreshadowed it's kind of like you're learning that as an afterthought But to give you a couple of these foreshadowings, remember when the nation of Israel sinned in the wilderness and God brought a plague on them, a plague of snakes, and it was biting people. I think 20,000 plus people died. And what was Moses instructed to do? Take a wood stake, and what did he put on it? A snake. And if you look at, and they've modified it a little bit, the medical industry... They have a stake with two snakes around it. Where do they get that? The Bible. The phrase, skin in my teeth, you know, that's from the book of Job. But this idea of the stake and the snake on it, anything that hangs on a stake is cursed. Jesus was crucified, became a curse for us, foreshadowed what was to come. What about the Lamb of God and the Passover? It was to foreshadow the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How about Melchizedek, the priest of the God Most High? He was to foreshadow Jesus Christ who was to come. What about Moses, the Savior of Israel, who spent 40 days in the wilderness? Oh, Jesus, the Savior of the world, who spent 40 days in the wilderness. What about the lampstand in the tabernacle, the only light that was there? Jesus is the only light of the world. What about the bread in the tabernacle? Jesus is the bread of life. And so there's, and there's tons more of these incidents of foreshadowing where God set it up in the Old Testament where anybody, if they were honestly looking, would see that the Old Testament is full of references to Jesus Christ himself. Some being very specific, like he'd be crucified, that he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver. All of those things 
were foreshadowed for us. But when will Elijah really come? Since it's been prophesied in Malachi, when will he really come? And I believe it's in Revelation chapter three, verse or 11, chapter eleven, verse three. It says, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devour devours their enemies. Who is the Old Testament prophet that called fire out of heaven? Elijah on the prophets of not on the prophets of Baal, but on the sacrifice that he set up in that little thing he had going on with them. Also, this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Now, it, it says that fire will come out of their mouths. That's some bad breath. Let me tell you, just whew, coming right out of there. These men have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain. Who did that in the Old Testament? It was Elijah, First Kings chapter 17. He shut up the sky through the prayers that it would not rain. And of course, the time came when it would rain. It says during the time that they are prophesying and they have power to turn the waters into blood. Who is that? Moses. And so this is probably foreshadowing what is to come in the future and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Who did that? Moses. Ten plagues in Israel. He would strike it. And so it would seem to be that it's Moses and Elijah that show up in the end. And this idea of two witnesses and two olive trees, if you look up a reference to, well, what, who else was referred to as an olive tree? Was Elijah referred to that? In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 11, it reads, Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Now, here there's only one lampstand. and the other reference, there were two lampstands. Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches besides the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now, in the mind of somebody who is a Jew, who would be the two greatest individuals to serve the Lord in all the earth. It'd be Moses and Elijah. And that's why I believe it's going to be Moses and Elijah. Now on that, I could be completely wrong. I'm not going to be here because of the rapture, but I'll probably get a nice view from heaven on what it's going to be like, just like you guys. But they're going to come down, I believe, and be a witness. Now from the point of Mount Hermon, I don't believe it's Mount Tabor, but on Mount Hermon, when Jesus said, hey, it's okay, guys, get up. When they got up, everything was back to normal. The cloud, the Shekinah glory was God, gone. Jesus looked like his normal self. He wasn't radiating from the inside out, looking white as light can possibly look. Moses and Elijah weren't there. And so Jesus reaches down and said, come on, guys, let's get up. And nothing was there except for them. I think I would be speechless after that. My jaw would be wide open. I, I, I don't know what I'd be. I think I'd be hyperventilating by the time this was all done. And Jesus probably said a few other words. It's going to be okay, guys. It's quite all right. Yeah, that was the father that you heard. Yeah, you knew that already. And that was, yeah, you knew it was Moses and Elijah. It was all good. 
But if you take some application from this, you know, it was probably just a wonderful spiritual experience to have that. I'm sure it was. But just as there are some spiritual experiences that we would have like on a mountain, like if you go to a retreat or you you go away by yourself and God speaks to you, he ministers to you and it's just, there's nothing like it to have that happen. And he prepares us for going and doing ministry. When Jesus left this mountaintop, you know the first thing that Matthew records that he ran into? A demon-possessed young man. Great. Mountain experience, down to the valley, and here's a demon. And, And his disciples tried to cast out the demon and were unable to. And you could see from the text a little bit of frustration on the part of Jesus. Oy vey kind of that's bill's version but that that's kind of what was going on with him but there's people who have that mountaintop experience and they come back and they go oh great life again and and we have to go through the drudgery sometimes of just dealing with life now it doesn't mean there aren't highs and there's not going to be lows and we don't want to overreact to either one. It's like maintain that even keel, just like a sailboat. You know, it lists a little bit, then it just keeps on going because it has that anchor, so to speak, that keel that is underneath. Jesus is our keel. He is our rock. He is our anchor. And so when we have the spiritual experiences, fine, wonderful, that's great. Bask in those. But when we have the trials that come along, don't go, I'm going to flip over. You're not going to flip over. Everything's going to be fine. You just keep your direction. You know, it's like my daughter's going to be having a baby in November. And, and when she does, I don't know if you remember this when you guys went through the childbirthing class. Focal point. Keep your focal point. He pant. <laughs> you know that? Keep the focus going forward. That's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to get taken off to one side or another when we have this spiritual experience and we have this huge letdown. Other people, they'll go through the spiritual experience and then when Jesus touched the disciples, there was nothing there. Some people walk this life in such a way where they've had a spiritual experience with God but there's no fruit. There's no involvement with Jesus Christ. There's no ministry. Going to church is a drudgery. Those people in the church are a bunch of sinners. Yeah. Saved sinners is who they are. But they have nothing. They have no fruit in their life. They don't progress. They don't mature. And that's what happens sometimes. They have this experience. Yeah, I was saved back in 1945. And look at me now. Yeah, look at you now. There's nothing. You should be Billy Graham by now, you know. So, or at least Billy Graham, whether you're cleaning sinks or whatever it is, you're just wholeheartedly giving yourself to the Lord. That's the point. I hope that's it, not the case with anyone in here. That we've had this experience with God and then we just walk away going, well, that was it. Yeah, it was wonderful back then. It's kind of like reminiscing about the music from the 60s and 70s. I've listened to a little bit of that lately. Yeah, it was good. I heard an advertisement for Chicago. 100 million songs or records or whatever they sold. It's like, and that was back then. This is now. And so we want to keep our walks with Jesus Christ current. 
We want to make sure that we're not relying on some experience from the past to hold us where we're supposed to be, but we never progress. So there is a transformation that is necessary. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, guess what he encountered? Apostasy. And if you remember the story, he said, all who are for the Lord, come up with me. And all who are not, because they were involved in revelry and sexual morality and idolatry and all of that, and the Levites came up, the ones who were priests, and they went through the camp and they killed everyone who was involved in the idol worship that was down there. And just as Jesus came down from the mountain and encountered spiritual conflict, we also can come down from a mountaintop experience and have that same type of conflict, which leads us to verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Jesus says in verse 17, oh, oy vey unbelieving and perverse generation jesus replied now it i asked the question is he talking about the guy who just came and asked him for help or is he talking about his disciples oh unbelieving and perverse generation and i was going wow well i don't know which which one was he referring to he goes how long shall i stay with you how long shall i put up with you bring the boy here to me <laughs> Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, to get a little more context, this is where a harmony of the Gospels would come in handy. In Mark chapter 9, verses 17 through 29, is the same story. And it fills in a couple of the gaps. I'll just read it to you. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech whenever it seizes him it throws him to the ground he foams at the mouth gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid i asked your disciples to drive out the spirit but they could not oh unbelieving generation jesus replied how long shall i stay with you how long shall i put up with you bring the boy to me so they brought him when the spirit saw jesus it immediately threw the boy into convulsions he fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth jesus asked the boy's father so how long has he been like this from childhood he answered it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him but if you can't do anything take pity on us and help him jesus goes if you can Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. And, of course, that's the proper attitude. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet. And he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive him out? He replied, this kind comes out only by prayer. Now, see, a couple of things are filled in here. Now, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 17 
And I want you in the NIV to look at verse 21. Somebody want to read it in the NIV? Go ahead. It just What's wrong? It's, it's not that. What? It goes from verse 20 to 22? Now, you heard me say before church started that the word of God is the word of God with no mistakes. Where is verse 21? Now, I want you to take your finger, put it on where verse 21 is supposed to be, and slide it all the way down, and you'll see a footnote. You see the footnote, verse 21? It's there. Now, why is that the case? Who has the King James? Could you read verse 21 in the King James, please? Nice and loud. Okay, so that's the verse that is in the King James, but it's not in the NIV. And you're going, well, well, why? Come back next week and I'll tell you. No, I got five minutes, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, the reason it's like this is the NIV, it goes back all the way to some original manuscripts. One of them is... Um, Sinaiticus, Texas, the text was from Sinai, and it was only a couple centuries old. There's another one in the Vatican called Vaticanus, and the uh, Alexandria, there's a text from Alexandria too, and it goes all the way back to that. The King James doesn't. The King James relies on several other translations. It doesn't go all the way back to the original. And normally in the NIV, some reference, not all the time, but uh, for instance, in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 16, in the last half, it it will say uh, some of the most reliable, oldest manuscripts do not contain these particular verses. What happened in the translation or transmission of the text is often it was the practice of scribes, like they would go to Mark chapter 9 here, and that last verse that says, he replied, this kind comes not out but by prayer. There is no fasting there and so a zealous scribe going up the line of the king james probably sat down and said well it's in this other account so i'm going to install it in matthew over here and by the way it's probably good if you're spiritual to pray and fast and that will give you more spiritual power and we know scriptures you can't fast if it's not god's will for something to happen and think it's going to happen and you can't gain spiritual power by fasting that's not the purpose of fasting. If you do a study on fasting, that's not what it's about. It's not, if we got spiritual power by fasting, we would all weigh 99 pounds because we'd see the power that would be there if we just didn't eat. And that's not it. Even Colossians tells us that this idea of treating the body poorly leads to spiritual maturity. It doesn't. And so that's what happened in the transmission. And there are these transmission errors, but in the original autographs, there are no mistakes. And this is why we check the different versions of the Bible that are out there. Because some of those slip in. I believe that God's word is without error in the original autograph. Sometimes there's a transmissional error that can uh, uh, appear in there. And we have to be aware of those things. If we don't do that, pretty soon we're going out teaching, you have to fast and pray in order to cast out demons. By the way, this word that was used for this uh, young man, in the Greek it refers to 
a lunatic. Somebody who looks at the moon and is just mesmerized by the moon, but he was actually demon-possessed. And so we would have called him, maybe a couple of decades ago, a lunatic. And not everybody, and this guy had seizures, not everybody who has seizures is demon-possessed. And we can make that mistake too. Somebody just has a chemical imbalance or the synapses are not wired correctly in the brain. And so, and some medication, it helps that. It doesn't mean that person's demon possessed, but God knew that this guy was. And they knew this from the infancy of the child. And so we don't want to make that mistake either. It's like there's so many things that we could attribute to demons. And there was a movement in the church years ago to do that, to ascribe every kind of failing in this life to some demon, the demon of baldness, the demon of bad. I have the demon of baldness, I guess. This this idea that you would have some demon that would cause something in your life. No, it's it's not true. I have the demon of forgetfulness. You know, no, that's not it. And that was bad doctrine. And that's why we want to watch our life and doctrine closely. And I'm just going to close it out here. We're out of time. It, it, it's this idea that we can go from a place, just a spiritual upliftedness, so to speak, a, a place where we experience God and it's all good. And we come down and bring the boy to me. And we get all frustrated in the ministry. And Jesus was clearly frustrated. And the reason he was is because both the father... And the disciples really didn't have faith. The father goes, if you can. And the disciples, you know, we tried. but And Jesus says, if you only have faith as a mustard seed. Tiny, tiny. A mustard seed is about the size of a head of a stick pin. That little round part on it, you know. And so may God give you a mustard seed. Where you can go out there and you can do great things for him. And do not doubt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it instructs us and enables us to live in this life when we think that things could go so wrong and we don't trust in you. May you be the object of our faith and may our faith not be based in our own abilities. So, Father, we we thank you for your word and the instruction it brings and bring us back here safely again next week so we can continue this marvelous story. In Jesus' name, amen.